Hello, uh, welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast uh, from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. I'm your host again, Ian Lewins, one of the PEM consultants there. And uh, this is a, a really special episode for me. This is, we're talking pick again today um, with Tom Waterfield, who is the lead author in the very, very recently published uh, PIC study, published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases. Um, so uh, good evening, Tom. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Ian. Um, good to speak to you again. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you back. Um, and this is a really important paper. Um, just to give a quick background for those people not familiar, we recorded a while ago, and that's why it's really nice, is that it's really great to have somebody on talking about the paper pre and then talking about the paper post. Um, but it was episode 28, and we talked about the background to pick, which basically said, look, um, kids who are hot with a non-blanching rash are unlikely to have meningococcal disease, but they might do, and we don't want to miss them. Um, we've got lots and lots of national guidelines. We're not quite sure which one's the best, um, and actually we haven't really looked at them since the introduction of the MEN-B vaccine. So how do they perform now? Is that about right? Uh, yes, yeah, spot on. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of background to this. I think the other thing to add in there is just the the landscape shifted a bit in terms of vaccinations as well. So certainly a lot of the previous evidence was pre-99, pre-men C vaccine, let alone men B. So there was a feeling that the kind of the the risk in the room, as Damien likes to talk about, or the pre-test probability had fallen, um, you know, when the risk of meningococcal was lower than when some of those guidelines were first developed. So it's thinking, okay, what's the risk now? How do these guidelines perform? Which one's the best one? Those sorts of things. So give us a bit of the background on, on how you guys went about doing the study. Yeah, so um, it was very much a collaboration with uh, PEM consultants, uh, you know, using the Pruki network. And we, we essentially looked at what the questions what needed answered, which were, um, you know, what's the most appropriate approach to children with a fever and a non-blanching rash? Um, and we designed a multi-site prospective study um, with a view to collecting data as the child came in. And we collected that data um, kind of in real time as much as we could and certainly before the kind of diagnosis was known. Um, and then, you know, we collected the clinical data, collected the blood test results um, and then looked you know at that data once we've got the final infections confirmed you know via blood culture or pcr using you know um those kind of me measurements um and look to see what clinical features what blood markers were best at predicting um invasive meningococcal disease and also um looking at different clinical practice guidelines and how they performed in terms of um safety so identifying children with um, meningococcal infection and also um their performance with regards to kind of minimising um, painful investigations, minimising the use of broad spectrum antibiotics, and um, and trying to reduce admissions. Yeah. So your your inclusion criteria is kids under eighteen coming to I think it's thirty seven paediatric EDs in the UK over a sixteen month period, and you've got to have a fever and you've got to have a new onset. Um, non-blanching rash suggestive of meningococcal infection. That's about right, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and in total, it's about 1,500 patients? So screened, 1,329 were included in the final um, analysis, you know, allowing for 
some patients to be excluded for diff- for various re- reasons and a few children with incomplete data sets. Yeah. Um, and median age is quoted as sort of 24 months, of which 60% were boys, which I thought was slightly interesting. Um, so... Yeah, and, high, and higher within the, within those with meningococcal as well. Um, you know, actually on the on the univariate analysis, it was significant in terms of being male increased your risk. I mean, the, the thing to say there is, I mean, just looking at it in front of me, I think we've got you know twenty odd different variables, and actually some of those were composite. So within the, the actual data, the data collection, some of those were actually four or five different features. So you know, there is an element of if you look for enough things. Yeah. You, you will you will find some signals which are not um, valid, and that's why we then did the kind of multivariable analysis. Um, and some of those things like gender dropped out as not being significant. So, um, but yes, yeah, so yeah, that's true. There was slightly more boys. Yeah, um, and you also looked at, as you say, uh, vaccination rates as well, both with men B and men C, uh, and they weren't bad. I don't know what's good, but they weren't bad, were they? Yeah, so so the vaccination the vaccination rates were uh, kind of as you'd expect. So, um, you know, I think we've got um, vaccinations up to date were you know ninety six percent for those um, you know overall, um, and and for the men B and men C vaccine, you know seventy three percent that had the men B vaccine, seventy seven that had the men C. Um, you know that's not because people haven't taken them; it's just due to the ages. So. You know, some of them um, weren't old enough to have had the, the you know the men's C vaccine, for example. You know, um, um, that kind you know that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, some of them were too old to have had the men B vaccine. You know, they missed that twenty fifteen introduction. Yeah. So it just depended on the age, really. Yeah, and I suspect that that potentially that might change over time as well as we go forward. To yeah, I, I mean, I think higher. the numbers were high enough to you know to say that actually we've got. Um, you know, a, a well-protected, vaccinated population. And it was interesting because I think one of the things, that the, don't forget the bubbles review was excellent, but one thing they did say was, you know, to be careful about unvaccinated children because we didn't have data on it. We did have, we do have data on it. I'm looking at it, it's in the, it's in the paper, but it's hard to maybe pick up everything. So we didn't mm. find a, you know, significant difference really in terms of vaccinated, you know, um, or unvaccinated. There's maybe a hint towards those without MEMB vaccine, maybe very slightly increased risk but um you know nothing significant nothing Mm. convincing and that would fit you know vaccines tend to be more of a kind of about the the herd immunity rather than the individual but yeah okay um so there's your there's your patients and then your positive case is as you said you know positive growth from a body sample so csf or blood and positive pcr um and you you checked again for sort of reattendance within seven days and importantly confirmed cases with the the public health agency didn't you yeah so so that was one just to clarify that so every hospital has to prepare its reports of public health um, and obviously, it's not one public health agency because we covered Scotland, Northern Ireland, and England. So we actually got the laboratories to check their records that they keep for public health. Um, just in case you get a public health England doctor right in to say, "Hold on, I don't know yeah. about this." So the hospitals have to prepare the list that they then submit to public health. So we ask them to cross-reference that list within yeah. each hospital against the, um, I guess the pa- against that the patients. So. It's it's slightly semantics, but yeah. So public health notifications at each hospital were checked. Yeah, um, and in terms of outcomes, um, you had a primary outcome and you had some secondary outcomes. 
Yeah, so I mean, the, the primary outcome really here was just around, um, you know, meningococcal, invasive meningococcal disease. We then also looked at, you know, any invasive bacterial infection um, as a kind of secondary outcome. And then some of our other metrics were around, um, you know, number of uh, blood tests performed, number of children requiring antibiotics, um, you know, that, that kind of, you know, other aspects. But primary outcome, you know, conf- confirming meningococcal infection. Okay, right. So that's the background. That's the bit we all knew. What are the exciting results? What did you find? So, I mean, I think the first thing we've confirmed what a lot of people have been telling us that, you know, meningococcal disease is now uncommon. Um, so, um, you know, 1% of children, 19 cases um, out of 1,329 presentation have, have, meningoc- have meningococcal disease. So, you know, we can no longer say, oh, you know, 10% or I've even heard 20% used before, you know, children with a non-blanching rash will have underlying meningococcal infection. So that's probably on its own, a huge, you know, a, a really important finding. The, the, so the risk is, is much lower. Um, and the other one was really, sorry. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I think that's, as you say, that's very much reflected in what people actually see on the shop floor. It's gone from being something that, you know, as I saw as an SHO 20 years ago, we would see, you know, one or two a month. I, I think I've seen one in the last two or three years. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing, I'd still think the original research on which our guidelines were based still overestimated the risk because they relied on, you know, convenient samples of admitted children. Mm-hmm. And an admitted a child admitted by a paediatrician with a non-blanching rash is not the same as a child attending, you know, an emergency department with a non-blanching rash. I, I believe that risk is higher. Um, you know, inevitably, some of those children were filtered and sent home before yeah. they reached, you know, the ward, and were included yeah. in the studies. Okay, so that's that's our one of our headlines is that, that the risk is potentially significantly less than we thought. What other results did you get? Um, I think it's reassurance for kind of local guidelines. So it's, it's a difficult one. You know, it's hard speaking. Too, in general, being too general because everywhere is slightly different but um, there can sometimes be a barrier to developing a local guideline when a national guideline exists mm. I think it does take a bit of bravery by that site and, re- and it has to be really kind of bought into by all of the people working there to justify why they've developed their own guideline um, and this is a kind of a big well, you know, well done to those sites that did that because what we found was every single local guideline um, outperformed NICE, depending on whether it was NICE feverish illness or NICE sepsis. And when we say outperformed, every single local guideline detected, you know, I'd correctly identified if it was followed to the letter, every single case of invasive meningococcal infection. But all of the local guidelines were statistically significantly better than nice in terms of minimizing investigations um, and reducing um, the use of broad spectrum antibiotics and that's really important that that you know the sensitivity of all these guidelines is 100 percent. yeah it, it was um it certainly makes the paper easier to interpret yeah. <laughs> and makes the debate more you know a, a, a much easier um you know, it is it is amazing that 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 came out that way. The specificities were still low. You know, even the best performing guidelines, the specificities were relatively low. But for a, a potentially life threatening infection, that's probably reasonable. 
Um, and actually anything we can do to kind of shift um, the dial, if you like, you know, so that we're not admitting every child and we're not investigating every child is, is a win. Um, I mean, the other side, the bit that's hard to get out in the paper is I, I think there's a harm and a risk from an overly cautious, overly kind of aggressive guideline. And I, I think that risk is that you lose buy-in from the clinicians that are using it. So, you know, compliance was very low across the board with the mm. clinical practice guidelines. Now, I know that's been demonstrated with lots of different um, conditions, but I think when the buy-in's so low, you almost don't have the guideline anymore. You know, cl- basically clinicians are doing their own thing. And what we did find was if clinicians do, you know, clinicians practice alone isn't, isn't that great. Although the specificity is higher, we, we still miss, um, you know, we missed two out of 19 cases that if we'd followed the guidelines to the letter, would any guideline would have been picked up. Um, but because clinicians chose to follow their own practice, um, we missed two out of, out of 19, which is around 10%, which is actually a figure that's been banded around for a very long time. You know, about one in 10 meningococcals will get sent home, you know, to come back. So I think the kind of hidden message there is if you're going to have a guideline, people need to believe it need to buy into it and use it that's and i think that's incredibly important because and i think that's such an important question to have asked is what what happens when people don't follow the guideline um because they are guidelines they are not set in stone but actually if you can demonstrate that your the guideline that you're using has a uh, a sensitivity of 100% and when we don't use the guideline that sensitivity drops in such an important condition not to miss I think it re-emphasizes the importance here of, of you know if you've got a good guideline follow it yeah I mean well I think that's the thing so if your guideline says every single child has a blood test you know essentially nearly every child will be investigated you know mm-hmm. and receive antibiotics in a busy emergency department when you're seeing huge amounts of children and lots of children with this presentation it's inevitable that you're going to have to deviate and when you're deviating without anything else you know we're falling back on our own practice you know if we look at this a clinic we look at the clinician practice so 86 percent of children had a blood test if they'd followed london or nottingham which were the top two performing guidelines you know 75 or 78 percent respectively would have had a blood test um you know so we would have reduced the investigations um in terms of costs you know clinician practice uh, 425 pounds per patient you know based on the the kind of algorithm we used going up to 490 for the london guideline you know but not factoring in the cost potential cost of litigation from the two missed cases so you know it's not that oh well actually if we follow a guideline here we're going to be doing lots more tests and it's going to be hugely expensive actually we're saying if you follow a, a good guideline that people buy into and you know can get behind actually we can reduce blood tests you know, and we can we can keep costs down compared to say, you know, Nice, which was coming in six hundred and fifty, six hundred and sixty pounds per patient, depending on which guideline you used. Yeah, as you say, that you know, Nice is of of the clinical practice guidelines is the is the poorest performing in terms of specificity and and cost. Is that simply because it's out of date? Do you think? Um, I think. <laughs> And I made this comment on don't forget the bubbles and I don't want to be inflammatory and I'm not trying to pick a kind of a fight. But I think there's an issue around serious infections and sepsis in general in terms of numerator and 
denominator. Mm. So, um, you know, research, and correctly so, in the early state, you know, will focus on learning lessons from the, you know, the numerator. So, you know, let's look at the children with this awful infection. What can we learn? What signs and symptoms did they have? But there needs to be that balance to say, okay, this symptom here is a potential red flag. Is it common? You know, do you see it very often? Um, what happens to all the other children that come in with this symptom? Is there anything else that we can do? And, and I, I think the NICE guidelines have too many red flags, are too dovish, um, and to a point where they're impractical. And then yeah. actually become risky because if they're impractical, people won't follow them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as you say, you, you need to sort of believe in in the guideline that you're using, um, and you know, of the guidelines, as you say, I'm sure everybody wants to know: is mine the best? Well, it, it's Bart's that has the best performing guideline. Yeah, well, actually, not interesting. Not Nottingham um, did until they changed it. <laughs> so the more features you add in, and this has been discussed a lot with COVID, you know, mm. people are getting, I think, more kind of tuned into the science of prediction tools and things you know, the, you know the more features you add in the lower the specificity goes so again if you're writing a guideline you have to be really wary about just dropping in another feature you know so um i, I think from memory and probably some of them not to complain i think initially it was only crp and then they started adding in some of the other blood parameters uh, which dropped the specificity otherwise you know nottingham would have been first so um, but Having sort of reviewed all of these, are, are, are the protocols pretty much of a muchness? Is there? Yeah, sort of... so they're pretty. They're pretty similar. I mean, um, the the in my, in my head, the kind of simplest version really is, you know, if you think when they come in, if someone just says to you fever and non-blanching rash, their risk is in and around one percent. So the first thing there is actually the teaching needs to change. To mm. does the child have a purpuric rash? Only. 49 children from memory had purpura you know, it's, it's an, with fever. It's not a common, yeah. um, you know, it's not it's actually not a common presentation. So that almost, I would like those separated, you know, yeah. rather than not it's that purpuric rash. Um, and if they're shocked, meningitic, you know, or have per, purpura and fever, their risk jumps to around 10%. So I'd be arguing that you, you know, you should be treating nearly all of those. Um, yeah. They're saying nearly some places have rules around HSP, my actual feeling is um, for juniors, certainly, or if, you're, if there's any doubt, I would even treat the HSPs because mm. there are reports of those being missed and we don't get that many febrile children with HSP. You know, it's not a, a huge win. You know, it's, it's somewhere to be, you could be safe, you know, safely give them antibiotics and, and it's not going to make a huge difference to your specificity. Um, but if they don't have, if they're not unwell, they don't have purpura, you know, they're not meningitic or shocked, the, the risk is actually kind of halved. You know, they're, they're less than, significantly less than 1% now. Um, and then that's where you have to look for your other, you know, is there another diagnosis, another reason? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then if you do decide to do biomarkers, you know, although this, this doesn't feature heavily in the paper, the best performing biomarker, you know, the only one with any real accuracy is, is CRP compared to, you know, white cells, neutrophils. Um, and the cutoff for that certainly, you know, twenty, you don't really lose anything from six, um, yeah. and thirty, you lose very little from twenty. So t- somewhere between twenty and thirty would be your CRP cutoff. And actually, if that's below that level, you're, you're dropping down to 
kind of um you know getting closer to kind of 0.1 percent you know your risk is really falling away so there's lots of you know, that would be the simplest way in my head a lot of guidelines have this svc distribution particular rash yeah um, i'm not still not convinced by that i know it's in there but i think actually that is the child appears well they have a static rash and um, it's petechiae only and they have an alternate explanation you know and actually i think it's all of those things combined not that it's you know an svc distribution rash or whatever yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, as part of the team that collected the original sort of Louise Wells data back in 1999, where we had to measure every wretched spot and everyone had blood tests and we all had body maps, I've, I've kind of stuck with that for the last 20 years. Um, and that's just my own personal uh, bias. One of the other things I thought was really interesting in the paper is you talk about limb pain as a potential red flag yeah so, so that came, that was surprising that came out in the that were held up through the multivariable analysis so um you know i think if it's if it's there and it's reported in the context of a fever and non-blanching rash it's probably real that the issue here is that may well drop in specificity as we ask more about it mm-hmm. so you know, I I think it's something. It's not in a lot of guidelines. It is in Nice actually um, that we probably don't always ask ask about. So if it's volunteered, you know, um, that's. Pro- I wonder if that will be more relevant than if we start asking every child, "Do you have any aches or pains? Any any do you, are your limbs sore?" Um, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. If we ask everyone for it, the specificity of that will fall. Yes. Um, yeah. Because it's something that wasn't maybe routinely asked for, but when volunteered actually was quite significant yeah and that that i thought that that was one of the other things that really struck me is it's not something i've ever asked about but as you say the more i ask about it the more positive responses you'll you'll get um which guideline do you use locally out of interest so um i'm kind of just changed in belfast we technically (laughs) use the nice guidelines although um I don't think it's unfair to say there's a lot of kind of clinical judgment used with that. Um, I always quite like the Nottingham guideline before they changed it. The London one's very similar. You know, I think they're pretty interchangeable. They're nearly all the same apart from adding in. You can just see, you can almost imagine being in the room when they were putting the guideline together and someone said, let's just add in, you know, don't (laughs) don't forget about um, tachypnea. We must have that. Okay. You know, and by the end of it, you've got so many features that you lose your um, your specificity. Um, I would love to. There's, there's a guideline that's going around at the moment that's being put up for consultation from um, Sheffield Children's Hospital, which is very good that Edward Snelson's put together. Um, so, so that, that that looks very promising, and I have run that through um, the data for him, and it, and it is performing well. But I'm sure he'll um, promote that. Uh, I look forward to to, to that. Um, and so, with the the kind of the data you've got, uh, are there any other sort of things that you can look at uh, as well as what you've just already published? So, I think I mean we have already published stuff around um, lamp. So we use loop mediated isothermal amplification um, of throat swabs. So. Meningococcal, you know, we typically enter through the nasal or a pharynx, and um, 
we, you know, we think it can be detecting quite high levels in those with um, invasive meningococcal disease. Um, there is carriage, but carriage is actually relatively low, especially in younger children. And we found that if they had um, evidence of meningococcal DNA um, in the oropharynx in the context of a fever and non-blanching rash, that was quite, well, that was excellent, actually, in terms of a marker. Um, but it's expensive and fiddly. So unlikely in a kind of low prevalence setting to be justifiable. Um, we looked at procalcitonin and we had very few, that was only done at limited sites, so very few children with meningococcal included in that. Um, but the performance, you know, we did look at it for the other infections, was was similar to CRP, really. It um, wasn't okay. hugely better. So, and then, we, and then we did some other work around some other biomarkers, but in quite small numbers. So, I mean, they were the other kind of outputs, but I think the main the main thing that's useful to people is around the, the clinical practice guidelines um, and, and kind of giving people that confidence that the risk is relatively low and um, you can safely develop your own guidelines. Um, and then obviously some of the features there that you may want to use or include um, in them. Um, my last question, just as a thought, was obviously the, the inclusion criteria for this was kids with fever. Did you encounter any kids who had meningococcal disease who presented without fever or w- would they have been excluded from this data? So the two that were um, missed, if you like, um, well, were also febrile, I believe. But you do, you, know, um, you do have children in there with kind of 38 degrees, um, you know, only temperatures. You know, it, there wasn't anything about the, the actual, you know, kind of, this and it wasn't looked at um you know it wasn't a variable that was useful so we looked at it you know the height of the fever wasn't helpful you know and there were certainly children with low you know low level temperatures in there yeah okay so well tom look this is a great paper and i I just really wanted to add my congratulations to you on this i think it's something that many people are going to be really interested in um and and we'll be reading over the coming weeks um so thank you so much for for joining us today and and just having a chat through it thanks thanks for having me Ian.